And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's special guest Subterranean Press publisher and editor William Schaefer, with Gary K. Wolf and Jonathan Stran on the Coot Street Podcast! And we're off at the races. This is, uh, Bill, this is, this is Jonathan's attempt to do pop Muppets, I guess. Oh, and everybody that's kind of painful. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I've got a painful question for you. Um, Fire away. All right. The Subterranean Press has uh, an amazing track record of having, it's hard to name a major author in the field, science fiction, fantasy, or horror, that you haven't published in one form or another, past or present uh, included. And um, my question is, where did you get this good taste from? You seem to have a really good ear for um, for writers that are not widely known outside of your publications, like K.J. Parker, for unedited books by Peter Straub that include things that he, he adored but that the mainstream publisher didn't. How did, you, how did you get to where you are in terms of knowing what you want to publish? Um, you know, I, I, uh, I misspent my youth reading SF paperbacks. <laughs> and and spent spent college wandering around every week. I, I was an English major after a, a couple of uh, years as a, a computer science major, at which I actually had quite a bit more talent than English. Um, and uh, I have sort of for for a good number of years, I just started collecting the writers I grew up reading. For example, Tim Powers materialized, Blaylock materialized. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. Uh, I eventually got to work with Steve King, who I've, I've been reading since, since I was 17. Um, and then uh, I, I had spent uh, a good deal of the 90s reading bestseller thrillers and, and things uh, and not paying a ton of attention to SF. And when we first started out in, uh, in 95, we were, uh, to put it charitably, a cemetery dance clone. Mm. And I, I realized that, that that put a certain governor on our growth and on the breadth of what we could do. And uh, while they do dark fiction of a certain sort very well and, and market it very well, um, you, you know what you're getting with a certain, within a certain degree with a, with a cemetery dance hardcover. And I decided after a couple of years of doing that that it wasn't what I wanted to do. And so we just started gradually adding people who I'd grown up reading, and I started reading uh, quite a bit more heavily in the field uh, after, after a number of years away. And, uh, um, you know, it's uh, some of these people have taken, taken many years to convince to work with us, and some of them have said, Yes, right off the bat. Um, I, I think we've done some, you know, some things I'm really happy with. I'm, I'm, I'm really happy to be publishing Lewis Shiner, for example. Uh, mm-hmm. He just turned in a 34,000-word alternate uh, world, uh, alternate history, actually, uh, uh, novella about Nazis and uh, magicians uh, for the mm-hmm. online magazine. Um, and, 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 and Lou is, you know, author of a perfect sentence who's, who's unfortunately always been one step ahead of a, of, of a building readership. Um, so we've got people like that. And, and then we have, uh, um, 
you know, we 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 do limited editions by people like Dan Simmons who have a a very concerted following, and mm-hmm. uh, it, it's just how it's 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 grown. The, uh, there is one thing that that has been troubling me increasingly uh, in, in the past few years, and it's uh, this is the first time I've actually talked about it. It's it's pretty embarrassing, but we have an absolutely horrible track record about publishing people who are other than dead or aging white males. Mm-hmm. And uh, for many years, I, I wasn't aware of this. And I, uh, um, and, and some of it can be explained because, well, I, I happen to be an aging white male myself, and frequently their books speak to my concerns, and, and I know how to sell them. I can tell upon reading an epic fantasy um, if it's a crowd pleaser and something I can do something with, or if mm-hmm. it's something that's, even if very well done, a book I can't sell. And I, I don't seem to have that touch when it comes, comes to female writers. So one Although of the things that... Pardon me? No, continue, Go please. Ahead. Finish your thought. So one of the things that's been ongoing, uh, Yanni Kuznia, who who's my director of production and, and a partner in everything but name here at Subterranean, has been slowly giving me things to read that that I, I really haven't discovered on my own, and 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 that's one area that we really hope to to expand the business in because, uh, frankly. It, you know, the, having that as a blind spot today is just uh, unacceptable. Do you feel that that's a change in the science fiction field since you started in '95? I don't know because so much of what we do is have done is predicated upon my own reading that. Uh, uh, there's certainly more awareness of it now than there ever has been. And the difficulty that, that I'm going to find is I, I can pretty readily identify those writers, those male writers, who I can publish in $40 or $75 or $125 and up limited editions. And it's more difficult for me, at least, to identify those writers uh, those female writers uh, that we can hit at the price points that we need to. Um, I was going to I was going to defend Subterranean Press from its own publisher for a minute because you've done a lot. I'd say more than any uh, other publisher to keep Caitlin Kernan's name before various awards committees, making her short fiction available, and she certainly had success with novels. Um, and that's one example that may be an exception. And the reason I say it's an exception is that she immediately came to mind. Um, and then nobody else did. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can, you can include Connie Willis, and there are some mm-hmm. other folks. Okay. Right. But, right. But, and, and also, I mean, I know there are people that, I mean, again, to, to, to get defensive on your behalf, uh, that you would have published had the world permitted it. I mean, I know there are because we've discussed it. The Karen Joy Fowlers and Ursula Le Guin's, whose work I know you love. So it's not just... As simple as being unaware, is it? I mean, it's like some of it is practicalities of the world as well. Some of it, well, yes, yeah, some of it is, uh, um, and I'm happy to say, for example, next year we're uh, we're doing the best of Nancy Kress. which is great. 
oh, um, which I think is cool. going to be a great book. Um, but even even given those cases in which uh, I, I've asked and been told no, uh, you know, uh, the the percentage is not where I would like it to be. And it's it's definitely something that that we're addressing internally, and and I'm addressing a bit as a reader, um, going forward. Hmm. Something like that. When you mention the best of Nancy Crest, which I think is overdue, that I think is a service to the field that subterranean has done. And we've obviously Jonathan and I worked on the best of Joe Haldeman. You've done the best of Philip Jose Farmer. You mentioned Lewis Shiner. It seems to me that these are books that inevitably would have been published 30 or 40 years ago, possibly if only by the Science Fiction Book Club. And it seems to me you're the only one interested in doing these now, and that's an important way of recording the history of our field. Um, and, and that has been one of the major aims of, of, of doing those books. The, the first one we did was actually not a best of. It was uh, what is so far George Clayton Johnson's only collection called All of Us Are Dying. And it was uh, a career retrospective, and it's 460 or so pages. And um, there's there's a couple of things going on there. A, um, it they're they're nice summations. Um, it's a it's a good way to uh, to introduce someone to an author, and B, it it, it it's an also a very good way to get those writers back into libraries. Um, yeah. You know. My favorite, probably my favorite of the best ofs, is Michael Swanwick. And, uh, you know, they may have bought previous copies of, of his collections, and, you know, when they wear out, libraries do not necessarily replace uh, works by uh, people who are, who are best known for their science fiction short stories. Mm -hmm. So getting these best of, best of volumes reviewed and then into libraries is a way to to give them some additional life. And the other thing that, that these sorts of volumes have, have done, although they're not necessarily just best ofs, um, we've made a concerted effort um, to keep certain authors in print towards the end of their careers. Mm -hmm. uh, here I'm speaking most specifically of Philip Jose Farmer and, and Jack Vance. Mm. Um, Chris Lotz, who was, was the agent, their agents and now is the agents for the estates, and I were talking at one point, and, and he pointed out that part of the problem is outside of a few greatest hits, uh, New York doesn't know what to do with, uh, with those writers who are no longer producing a novel a year um, mm -hmm. And hence, you get you get us doing. You know, I believe we're up to five volumes of uh, of short stories by Jack Vance, yeah. as well as the the big best of. And we published, I don't know, four, sure. or five, or six collections by uh, Philip Jose Farmer towards the end of his life. Let me ask you. I mean, you start you started. Subterranean Press, sort of in an apartment in 1995, probably eating ramen noodles and publishing horror <laughs> books, right? With with Tim Holt. Tell me, what was your vision for the press in 1995, other than to be still doing it in six weeks' time? And has the mission changed over time? Do you think? Oh yes. Yeah. Um, 
at that time, there, there, there didn't seem to me to be small presses putting out the, the number of books per year that we are. Yep. And I was looking at us doing, you know, it, it would be a, I hoped, profitable hobby and, and doing four to six volumes a year, mm-hmm. which, which at the beginning really was all we could handle because we had full-time jobs. Yeah. And I found that uh, the difference between four and eight books wasn't a whole lot. Yeah. Uh, as far as as far as work goes, um, and, and there are there were certain jumps where there was not a whole lot of difference between adding this amount to your schedule, um, and, and then you'd hit another another point, and all of a sudden uh, it would seem like you were doing twice as much work as you had been doing just the year before. Yeah. Um, so it was not uncommon for us to be putting in eight-hour days at work. We both worked for a public library system, mm-hmm. going home, working for five or six hours, and then on days off, putting in 18-hour days. Wow. And one thing that, um, that we did in retrospect that was the best thing that we could have done was for the first five years in the press was in existence, we took absolutely no money out of it. Yeah. In, in fact, to the point where the business was profitable in year three, I think, and we started getting taxed yep. on income that we weren't actually receiving because we refused to take anything out of the business. Yep. And mm. thing, things expanded. Uh, Tim, <laughs> Tim bought a house, and I had agreed to move with him, and he actually had the house for something like six weeks mm-hmm. before I had the free time to go see the place, <laughs> uh, which was, I, I think we went over there at midnight after, after going out to a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and we turned the back sunroom into the shipping area. Uh, and then in the back end of the living room, he had an office. I had an office upstairs. Um, so things, things grew quite a bit. And, and then we, uh, Excuse me. We uh, um, wound up hiring a part-time shipper, and uh, did that for a while, and, and, and until uh, until that became unworkable. And then we wound up hiring some friends of Tim's to do the shipping, which was one of the poorest decisions <laughs> that we have ever made. Um, and. It, it part of the problem there was um, Tim is very good at, at doing things in the shadows, uh, keeping the books. Um, he was back in the day. He was very good at designing them mm-hmm. before uh, merely generating invoices and keeping track of those things uh, became a full time job. But managing people is not one of his strengths. Yeah. So. We moved to the warehouse uh, down here, uh, I don't know, four or five years ago, yeah. and uh, um, burned through a, a bunch of employees who just didn't work. And it was a strange growing experience because we'd, we'd been used to doing pretty much everything ourselves. And yeah. as you gentlemen know, I'm not always the easiest person on earth to get along with. Yeah. And then I all of a sudden I had to deal with employees, and 
what I fell back on was just how terrible my employers at the library were yeah. and what sort sort of culture I wanted to foster at uh, at the warehouse. And, and we've been very careful in our hiring. Um, I looked actually for two years for someone before I hired Yanni Kuznia to come on board and start helping me with the production and then yeah. eventually take it over. And then, uh, um, you know, we we have a really good staff in place and we've needed a new shipper uh, actually for more than a year until I finally found someone at all places uh, in my uh, fencing class <laughs> um, who was interested in that and also fit the bill that we need to be more active on social media yeah. and she's very savvy about those things and she's going to be a new college grad here in, in September and she's working part-time for us now. And once she switches over to full-time, she will be uh, shipping part of the time and then spending the rest of her time uh, interacting with people. Um, since the, the press began, I've handled 99% or better of the customer service emails. Mm -hmm. And that continues to this day. And it it's... It should have stopped a long time ago, given our size and given given my personal duties. Yeah. But people really enjoyed talking to the person who can solve their problem. Yeah. And uh, I, I think that at some point I'm going to have to give some of that control up to someone because uh, finding we're we're doing 55 books a year and finding the deals, negotiating contracts, um, doing all sorts of other things. I, you know, earlier tonight I was on the phone with, uh, with John Picasso for half an hour discussing, discussing various uh, and very specific compositional elements to the cover for a Dan Simmons novel he's, he's working on for us. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I'm uh, sort of... Uh, uh, building my way out of being sure. able to do all of the customer service emails. Well, and, I was going to say, to segue for a second, basically your role at the press now has evolved into your what, publisher, commissioning, commissioning editor, and art editor for it, basically? Yeah. So so you, you have the primary voice in what we as readers and book buyers actually see. I do. I... Uh, um, I am, again, things are changing a bit, but uh, I buy 95% of what we, we pick up with, with Yanni Kuznia now starting to, to do some buying herself. Yep. Um, so far, she, she bought the best of Nancy Kress mm -hmm. um, after I suggested mm -hmm. she, she contact uh, Nancy to see if she was interested, and she bought a uh, Mira Grant novella. Um, and uh, as far as cover art goes, uh, yeah, I, you know, most of the time, unless an author specifies who they want to work with, uh, I, I match up an artist with, uh, with the project, yeah. um, get a number of design uh, samples from, from uh, Gail Cross, who does virtually all of our design work, and, and, and go from there. One of the things that fascinates me and has fascinated me 
for for years about about this com- combination of of packaging and cover art and selections as uh, as the impact. And you must be aware of this. The impact that subterranean press has in the field seems out of all proportion to the number of copies you print. Uh, you get on awards ballots with, with books that have editions of a few hundred copies. You're like, uh, what was it, Brian Eno who said about the Velvet Underground? You know, they, they sold 30,000 copies, but everybody who bought <laughs> one can. Uh, is, is that you? I think I think what you have there are some very plugged in readers and and after doing the, or doing this for almost 20 years now cuz next year will be the 20th year yeah. mm-hmm. um we have one hell of a mailing list yeah yeah well actually that touches on something i mean because people do talk about occasionally not not a lot about you know the number of copies that are printed and how long books stay in print and all of this how much for a start these days is subterranean press basically a direct marketing business i mean you as you say you've been going for nearly 20 years you've got a hell of a mailing list You've said to me yourself that your personal great talent about this is being able to guess print runs and work out how well books are going to do. But how much of it is it selling directly to a, a, a physical group of people that you already have a relationship with? By income, it's probably around 70%. Yeah. But mm. that doesn't take into account. There are, there are books uh, such as uh, Joe Lansdale's last collection, uh, Bleeding Shadows, mm-hmm. where... Uh, a good deal of the the print run. We, I mean, the book did very well direct, but we also sold a lot of copies by volume to the, to uh, wholesalers and to Amazon. Okay. So uh, it it it, it uh, there there are definitely projects that um, that are aimed specifically at our mailing list. Um, like the new Joe Abercrombie Limited we're doing, where there are 452 copies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and then there are books where, uh, uh, for example, we have uh, a new Anubis Gates novella by, or not novella, but novelette by Tim Powers at the end of this year, where the print runs likely to be three or four thousand copies, and mm-hmm. that's far more than we'll move direct. So I expect the bulk of those to go out through. Uh, through wholesalers and, and to Amazon. Mm-hmm. Actually, that sort of touches on something else as well, because one of the sort of, again, I think, slight misnomers is that, you know, books are done in a few hundred copies, but some of the books you've done in really full trade editions, I mean, some of the Robert McCammon titles, those sorts of things. We've done print runs, you know, not like, uh, not, for example, like what uh, what Nightshade was doing in their heyday, but we have had print, print runs up to 20,000 copies. Mm-hmm. And, and the McCammons are certainly on the high end for us. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm perfectly happy when, when we can do a five or 10,000 copy print run. And, and, and the nice thing about the McCammons um, are the, re- the return rate on those are very low. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not drowning in 50% returns. Yeah. And, and some of that is by design. Uh, I can frequently tell from looking at an order from from a distributor or from from Amazon and tell whether they really have orders they're trying to fill or whether they have an algorithm that has said buy this many copies. Yeah. And we try to be relatively conservative in filling those orders because the last thing we want is is to see um you know 400 copies of a given title come back on a, on a specific day. Yeah. 
Well, also, I mean, is, is one of the things here at play, and again, I guess it's because I'm, I've am i always disagreed with this view that there's something wrong with the, the model in play, is part of it that, on a practical level, a publisher on the scale of Sub- Subterranean, which is larger than a small press, you know, is a genuine independent specialty publisher, is it can't really have large-scale returns on titles and be able to continue in a viable way. You, know, you can't risk having 10,000 copies of a book returned and then have another 4,000 by another title and all that kind of thing. Some of the stuff which actually, I think, threw Nightshade into trouble over its, over its life. I'm afraid both of you just got lost. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, you're breaking up. Let, let me try that again. Basically, I guess the question I'm asking is... Is uh, I see sp- Subterranean as more of a independent specialty publisher than a small press. You, you know, you're much bigger than an old form- type of small press. Even something like Subter- Cemetery Dance or Dark Harvest or one of those kind of publishers. Is it when you, ch- you know, choose a print run size? Is it that Subterranean practically c- doesn't have the luxury of having? Um, large numbers of returns come back on titles and you have to practically manage that. And that's why uh, print runs tend to be smaller than some people in the public who aren't maybe aware of all the background details feel they should be. Uh, You may be right, but in the past few years, we've had books where we've done print runs that were five figures and sold in the mid four figures. Yeah. So, um, uh, I had one book last year where I the books actually never made it out of uh, out of my publisher's storage and into our warehouse. <laughs> so um, we do miscalculate and on a grand scale, at least by our terms of a grand scale, occasionally. But yes, we I, I am much more frequently to uh, on a, on a book that I think is going to do very well for us print. 5,000 copies and then go back to press uh, when I have 500 copies left in the warehouse than I am to print, say, 10,000 copies and um, just hope we sell all of them. Well, actually, that's that's another question. I mean, how often when... I mean, you've done some extraordinary books over the years. I mean, some really extraordinary books, and a number of them are out of print. Many of them are out of print. What is it that prompts you to keep a book in print or to reprint it within its lifespan? That's really tough because what what happens is we, we get you know, I get emails all the time from customers who who look at something and, and say this book is uh, you know the price on this book is ridiculous. Please reprint mm-hmm. it. And I have to be able to determine whether you know, there are 20 people out there who are will, really looking hard for this book, or it's something that's, that's going to have legs. And uh, one book that worked out very well for us that way was uh, the Barry Hugart trilogy. Mm-hmm. We've done a number of printings of that, and, and it's, it has sold very well through each of the printings. Um, but as a rule, uh, reprints... Reprints are fairly rare simply because um, while we don't necessarily deal with collectors exclusively anymore, we do deal with very well-informed readers. And 
the return rates on reprints are are quite a bit higher than they are on first printings. Mm-hmm. I can think of yeah, that's the way I've thought of subterranean. Uh, increasingly, there's, there's a service to the community kind of thing, like with the best of anthologies. And then I, I see it somewhere between what used to be these uh, very collectible presses, the kind of thing that Donald Grant used to do, um, and um, um, very cutting-edge sorts of things. What, what, what interests me are the, um, and I go back to what I'm saying about the, the impact beyond the print run, when you do novellas like um, Kiernan's Black Helicopters or, or Galinti's Six Gun Snow White, and those are what? 300, 400 copies each, and they get an award uh, no, no, in 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 those cases, uh, in in Caitlin's case, there were 600 copies done to accompany the limited edition, and I believe there were a thousand copies and an ebook edition of the Cat Valente novella. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so it's a really yeah. wide open. You see my point. reaching the right hand. Right. How do you more interested in getting the right readers than in getting a lot of readers? I'm sorry, what? I said, are you more interested in getting the right readers than in getting enormous numbers of readers? I'm interested in both. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm very interested in growth, and it's something we have been we 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 don't like to talk about 2009 around here <laughs> because that was that was uh, in fact when my my business partner puts together year-by-year year breakdowns, he sometimes just leaves that year off because that was the year where uh, the economy caught up to us. Yeah. And we were never in any danger, but uh, it's it's been the only year that has been uh, a downturn in the past decade for us. Um, so I'm, I'm very interested in growing our reader base, but... Uh, and and I'm not quite sure what you mean by the the right readers. Um, you know who those who know who Lewis Shiner is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, there there are you know there are books you do for love that 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 are going to show a modest profit and are 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 going to be books that uh, um, yeah that. Uh, you're going to be excited to see, and then there are books that are, for want of a better word, going to be crowd pleasers and and do a lot more business. And you you cannot run a small press based solely on your personal uh, personal taste. Yes, you you have to be able to differentiate your taste from what's going to sell. And and it's fine to mix, to mix the two, and and it's even better when you when you find a book um, that that has a lot of commercial potential that you also happen to to really love. Mm-hmm. Um, but we we generally are able to find things that that on some level we can be enthusiastic about, and um, and 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 are pretty good at avoiding things that. That we're only doing to pick up a check. Yeah. What are some best of anthologies that you would love to do and either haven't done yet or haven't had the opportunity uh, to do? You know, the one I really want to do is uh, there's, there's a few of them actually. Uh, I want to do a best of Karen Joy Fowler because I've been reading her since 
you know, since uh, um, what, the mid-'80s. Yeah. And I've sent a, a few feeler emails out and never had any sort of response. Um, one where I've been stymied. Uh, the agent has said yes, and we'll assemble the book for you, and uh, I check in once or twice a year, and it never gets done, as I really, really want to do the best of Jack Finney. Oh, wow. Oh, and great. include some of those uh, domestic stories from the 50s that uh, that are, you know, have that same warm, nostalgic feel that his time travel stories do, but have never been reprinted anywhere. Yeah. Those were Saturday Evening Post stories in Collier's, weren't they? Yes. Okay. Yes, uh, a number of years ago, uh, Stefan Zamanowitz sent me a large batch of them when I was first thinking about a best of Fanny. This might be as much as 10 years ago, and um, I spent a, a week sitting there reading uh, Ben Callender stories and, and, and uh, you know, just various uh, domestic, actually domestic fantasies in some sense um, of various stripes, and, and, and it was wonderful, and it would be great to do a book that that highlighted those stories that um, that have been have been in about time and everyone knows, but mm-hmm. but also include those stories that that virtually no one has seen in in fifty years. Okay. But yeah. I, I I really I'm not sure at this point that that's a book that I'm ever going to be able to to uh, to bring about. Well, um, when we do these things, it makes me think of. People I'd want to suggest, but I don't know if there are enough stories to make the kind of volume you need to do. Just by sheer coincidence, the other night I was listening. I've been, for bizarre reasons, I could download on my iPad old radio programs of X-1, and I was listening to the adaptation of Catherine McLean's The Snowball Effect. And so I went back and read some Catherine McLean. There's some terrific stories that I don't think have been reprinted since 1980 or so. Uh, who is this again? Catherine McLean. The name's not ringing a bell with me. Yeah. Really? She was, the Diploids was her main collection of short stories, and that came out probably in 1960 or so. She was one of the more influential women writing in the 50s and, and 60s. I, she's still alive, as a matter of fact. I met her at Readicon hmm. a couple of weeks ago. And uh, the snowball effect is, an ama- is, is really a rather startling story in that it uh, deals with Universities suddenly expecting academic departments to fund themselves through practical, <laughs> which is only an issue now. Uh, and it also deals with social media in that the sociology department conducts an experiment with a local women's sewing circle or something to increase their enrollment to what amounts to Facebook kinds of methods. The sewing circle ends up ruling the world. It's a wonderfully funny story that seems to me, and I remember some of her other stories from that period, but uh, I don't think she's been reprinted by anybody recently at all. There are a lot of them out there. There are. The reason I mentioned that name specifically is because you were talking about, uh, you know, women authors earlier that are that have not been. Um, collected or not been recognized, and in Catherine McLean's case, in danger of being overlooked entirely, I think. And that's that's a soapbox. Just ignore it. It's a, <laughs> see, and and there's part of the problem. I'm not sure I could do a print run large enough that that would uh, that would that would cover the book, let alone make a profit. Probably true. 
that's a problem. It, it seems to me that uh, um, some of the some of the presses we've had, like Ashtree, did a really good job of mining things that had a had a very small specialized audience, right? And and uh, and bringing them out. But I I I don't think I've seen a book from Ashtree in four years. Yeah, something like that. Right, and uh, Nesla, of course, did some of the same sort of thing. I think. Yes. They did the best of Judith Merrill, didn't they? Yes, I think they did. Um, how much of what you do then, Bill, I guess, and it's relevant to what Barry, Gary's saying in a way, is balance passion with practicality when it comes to choosing to do a book? It, it's, it's not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily break down on a specific book. Um, I have the luxury, since we're doing 55 books a year, that... I can take on a few every year that I look at and I go, wow, I'm paying $5,000 to have a copy of this book on my shelf mm. and, and, and be absolutely fine with it because I'm doing a number of other books that are anywhere from modestly profitable to, to very profitable. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's just you, you have to pay attention to keeping that part of your business uh, manageable. One of the most disappointing pieces of news I've heard in the last 12 months was the decision that you've made to discontinue Subterranean Magazine. Can you tell me how you came to start it? Yeah, um, I was, for a, a brief time, uh, um, the uh, I don't know, ghost managing editor of, over at Cemetery Dance reading all of their slush and um, helping Rich assemble the, assemble the magazine. And, and uh, I spent 10 years from, from 84 to 94 reading Asimov's from cover to cover. Yeah. And I'd always wanted to, to run a magazine. And then I would lie down until the feeling passed. <laughs> and uh, and, and it, it just kept creeping up on me. And finally I thought, why why not and and it started out as a as a print magazine and uh i let john scalvy guest edit issue four and you know the print runs for the for the uh the magazines i don't think were ever over five thousand copies yeah. and um as an experiment uh john put a pdf of his issue up on his site and overnight, something like 20,000 people downloaded the thing. Wow. wow. And a light bulb went off. I immediately stopped accepting new subscriptions to the magazine. Mm -hmm. And even while I was still getting out the last issues of the, uh, the print magazine, I started the online version because the magazine has always been my hobby within the business. Um, and it was created uh, because I enjoy commissioning short fiction, and and also it's it, there's a, there's an eye to um, to using it to help to promote the book line. Sure. I can remember uh, in one of the early issues when I I bought a Sherry Priest novella and published it, and that week sold 200 copies of uh, of uh, an associated book. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And. and so it's, it's 
it's it's been very good that way. Um, it, it's also, uh, unfortunately, I'm not very good at sticking to my budget. <laughs> so, um, I have, uh, you know, th- there's a reason Ted Chang has appeared in the magazine <laughs> and, and, and works with us. Yeah. And, and there's a reason I got a, a nice long Bob Silverberg original. Yeah. And, and there's a reason why this last issue has, has, uh, you know, Harlan Ellison's first story in three years. Yeah. Um, so the, the budget, you know, it, it varies. It got out of control, but I, the business could afford it and, and, and I was enjoying it. And it reached the point though, that I'm not reading much short fiction other than what comes comes through for the magazine. And that's a problem because then I have a fairly defined roster to go to. Yeah. And while I'm happy with all of the individual stories I've bought for the magazine, for the past year or so, if, if you look at it as a whole, it has actually stagnated a bit. Mm-hmm. And that um, I needed to find new people, and uh, I, I wasn't doing it. And and there there are another reason is it it lags behind some of the other magazines as far as circulation goes. Yeah, it doesn't have nearly as many readers as as Clark Clark's World, for example, or uh, John Joseph Adams magazine, I presume, and. Mine has always been a real throwback to the digest. Yep. Um, as far as presentation goes, as far as publishing a lot of novellas, and I realized that if if I really wanted the magazine readership to grow, I needed to redesign the entire thing. I needed to add a ton of features, and I needed to you know get the word out in ways that. Uh, that we're going to take it from being a hobby into being actual work. Yeah. And I just decided I I didn't want to do that. And uh, so the, the time has come to to end the magazine. Yeah. Although we have con- we we have talked internally about some ways we may go about offering continuing to offer free fiction, and I suspect that. Uh, in a year or so after uh, the magazine is completely behind me that we're going to find a way to do that. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't, didn't uh, but it, but it won't be in, in nearly as formal a way as a, as a magazine appearing four times a year. Yeah. I well, was just reading. Um, well, I mean, one of the things I will miss from the magazine, and I just noticed this because I was, writing a review of uh, K.J. Parker's academic exercises and speaking to my two fellow podcasters tonight, if I'm not mistaken, if it had not been either for Jonathan's anthologies or for Subterranean Online, no K.J. Parker fiction, short fiction, would have been published in this country in the last 10 years. That's pretty accurate. I, yeah. I, uh, I, I read uh, K.J.'s uh, um, engineer trilogy and and was really impressed by it and, and wanted to get in touch with her. 
and I sent an email off into the wild and, and, and essentially said, hi, I think you can help me. Mm-hmm. And this person wrote me back and said, why, yes, I can. And, and then I, I got an email from KJ herself, and, um, and I said, 25,000 words? Mm-hmm. And um, we've done a couple of hardcover novellas, and, um, and then we've done, I think, three of them in the magazine itself. Plus, mm-hmm. uh, um, there are three or four stories, I think, that, that, that stand well above just about everything we have published in in subterranean and and one of them is uh KJ's a small price to play to pay for bird song yeah which uh does virtually everything KJ is good at in 15,000 words yeah mhm it's a wonderful story and an academic exercises is is an yeah, awful well, lot of fun yeah academic exercises is certainly one of the and most important collections of the year, uh, and and again, when you when you when, when you write a review of this sort of thing, as I as I did, you you want as many people as possible to get a copy. Now, I it's a it's, it's a collection really mostly of novellas, and the question then is, um, if I, I as a reviewer want to have everybody go out and buy this, and there are only so many copies they can buy, is that sort of thing ever going to go to reprint? No. The, the the readership for KJ's novellas in the past um, they sold modestly well for us, but yeah, uh, I I don't expect uh, academic exercises to break any records. And for those things, actually, one area that we have grown into in the past few years is eBooks. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And 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 so for those things that we want to continue to make available, I usually try to pick up the ebook rights. And and we have some things that sell, you know, four copies a month, and then we have some titles that sell, uh, you know, several hundred copies a month. It's been an it's been a really nice extra revenue source for us. Um, I know uh, I probably shouldn't say this, but. I buy an awful lot of ebooks these days simply because I've reached the point in my life where I uh I have space considerations. Mm. <laughs> and and also I I've reached the point in my life I'm 46 where I have bifocals. And yeah. mass market paperbacks are no longer my friend. It's true. It's a sad tr- sad fact. I mean, uh whilst I find great joy in reading a well-designed particularly hardcover and in fact, not very long ago, I was enjoying rereading uh, Tim Power's Last Call in the in fact yeah. in, in your edition. I I do confess that some of the paperbacks are more of a challenge than they should, and I can't read a digest magazine in its digest format any longer, in a, in a comfortable way. I mean, I, you know, where and so those things are natural eBooks to me. Actually, this is kind of an, a thing I hadn't thought about talking about, but it's relevant. Do you see a an evolution of the market to where each of the different formats, if you like, of a kind of book get their own niche. You know, so where there's a, a decent place for an e-book and, and have it not be the enemy of print and a good market for well-designed, high-quality, hardcover books and a place for a trade or mass-market edition as well. We've, we're actually already seeing that. Uh, um, 
perhaps I shouldn't talk about this, but what the hell. Um, I was approached to do a hardcover of the new Octavia Butler short story collection mm-hmm. that is currently only available as an ebook. Yeah. And, yep. and if, if all of that works out, we will have a hardcover. So it will have a print version um, as, as well as having the, uh, the primary version being the ebook that's available through Open Road. Yeah. Um, the one thing that, we're, that we need to be careful of and, and, and keep in mind, we don't release everything that we do as an ebook, not, not, not because we don't think it will sell, but we have to be careful that we don't eat our seed corn. Yeah. That uh, we don't uh, have people go, yeah, I don't want the $40 hardcover. I'm going to wait for the $6.99 ebook. Sure. Sure. One thing that some small, pre- well, some specialty publishers have done, and you've dabbled in it carefully, is the whole collected stories kind of a setup. I mean, I think the most famous one I can think of would be doing the collected stories of Robert Silverberg, which has been a major project that I think is coming to its conclusion this year. Yes, uh, I, the actual, the final volume I think might actually be at the printer already. How did that come about, and how successful has it been? Um. It, it has done well. Uh, it, it varies by volume, um, but overall, it is, it's been profitable. It's earned Bob royalties. Um, we've further licensed uh, the trade paperback, which we are we've we keep in print uh, via POD, and we have the ebook rights, which we keep which we uh, which we reprint uh, as soon as the hardcovers are uh, are done. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's. Uh, I've enjoyed the number of series that we've had to do, mm-hmm. and it's. It actually makes things easier in some ways because, once we develop a template, it makes designing the subsequent volumes easier than having to do, say, a, a an entirely new look, yeah. um, for a book. But I, I'm also. Uh, looking forward to uh, when some of the series that we're doing wrap up because you know we've been we've been doing the collected stories of Silverberg for nine years now sure and uh, I don't think Bob ever thought that <laughs> that, that, uh, that we would make it well I think there's only one other project in the history of the field like that yeah hello hello hello, hello. What I was going to say that the only other uh, thing I can think of in the history of the field like your Silverberg series is the collected stories of Theodore Sturgeon. Oh, I was right. But, yeah, um, I was right, too. I, I guess the same thing. My problem is this. The, the Sturgeon thing and the Silverberg seems to me to work out better, possibly because Bob is still a vital and influential. But the first couple of volumes of the Sturgeon series basically consisted of stories that nobody wanted to read. I actually had a great deal of fun with those, but well, I'm I, I'm a big fan of Juvenalia. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, well, I was going to say as well. I mean, you, you you've done the collected stories of Silverberg. You reprinted the uh, a, well a variant edition, I guess, of the Underwood Miller collected Dick. The the Jack Vance books, which I guess, in all honesty, on the podcast, I should make clear I've helped work on, have, have amounted to a de facto collected stories. Do you have any other projects like that you'd like to do? Uh, I haven't given it any thought, to be honest. Um, 
And, and there are other people who are doing really good work in, in, in those large collections, uh, in particular Centipede Press. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they actually just did an expanded version of uh, Charles Beaumont's uh, Selected yeah. Stories, a.k.a. The Howling Man. Yeah. And uh, it's beautiful, and um, the one thing I like is it, it gives me an excuse to reread the stories. Of course. Well, actually, since we're kind of getting towards the end of the hour, we've got a little bit of time to go. I guess a segue here as well is sitting here in June or July, early July of 2014, are there any books that Subterranean is doing now that you're particularly excited about? I mean, I see you've announced a, a, a well, a best of of sorts of Harlan Ellis and a collection of his award-winning stories, and I know you've got a relationship with him. You've got a couple of books that I think, I mean, Gary's touched on Academic Exercises, which I think is an extraordinary book. And uh, you've got Lucia Shepard's final novel. Um, how are things looking? Uh, they look fine. We have some uh, some really, really high-profile stuff lined up for next year um, that I actually can't talk about, <laughs> um, in part because I'll, I'll start getting emails from people wanting to, to pre-order a copy. Uh-huh. Um, you know, the... Every every year we start in January building a, a a schedule for the following year and try to keep it um, as balanced as we can, mixing in those titles which are geared to collectors with those titles for which we're hoping for reviews so that we don't have a month where we have, say, six books that we're going to send to Publishers Weekly because we know they're going to pick two or three. Yeah. Whereas if I have two books in a given month that I'm hoping that PW and various places will review, my chances are much better. Yeah. And there's the first fireworks of the evening. <laughs> uh, let me ask you this, though. I mean, I know you had a long relationship with the late Lucia Shepard, and yes. you're about to publish next uh, later this month, Beautiful Blood. Um, do you know if there's any more work it, you know, available. I mean, was his other work was finished, or, or will Beautiful Blood basically be his final book? Do you think? There, um, I, I heard from uh, what I can only describe as a probably a Lucius super fan, and and there were a few of them who who put together a list of all of the uncollected uh, Shepherd. Yeah. And um, I, I told them it it really doesn't look to me like you have a book here. Yeah. Um, you, mm-hmm. you, you have, you have, you know, an oddity. Um, you don't have a major collection. Um, I have heard, yeah, you know, it, it's hard to tell with Lucius because there were times Lucius would tell me something was nearly done and, mm-hmm. and, and I suspected he hadn't started it yet. Yeah. And, um, at the, at the time he passed there, there was supposedly a, a nearly done novella he was working on for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard stories of a novella from the early 80s that's never been published called The Cat from Brazil. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are, uh, you know, the, there, there, there's, a, there's a few things here and there that have never been collected, like his, his novella Aztecs, which we published as a small hardcover. Sure hasn't been collected and the last time remains uncollected and uh, short stories from here and there 
but uh, I don't know of anything major yeah. um, that remains. However, if I had it, I would be looking at Lewis or at uh, Lucius's hard drive very carefully. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, I don't think anybody, in my recollection, and I would consider myself a Shepherd fan over the years, who had a greater fictional bibliography than Lucius. You know, the, you know the, the number of books that were cited from you know the the end of life as we know it to Kingsley's Labyrinth to I don't know what all you know the Grand Tour yeah the, well the Grand Tour the the sad book that will never be published though of course the, the I guess the Dragon Growl book that you did last year or the year before would be as close as we're ever ever going to see to it I was very happy to get that book that was a I. Uh, I, I'm I'm not a huge fan of the the novel that ends it, uh, the skull, yeah, which uh, kind of puzzled Lucius. Um, but I think everything else in there is top notch, and Beautiful Blood uh, is, as far as I'm concerned, as good as the best of the other novellas. Mm-hmm. I think it's true, and I, I I like Beautiful Blood a lot, and I think it's a wonderful memorial, but it seems to me also Beautiful Blood is trying to somehow make the transition between the other Griot stories and the skull. Somehow it moves from Europe to Central America uh, during the course of the novel, which is fine. It's a fantasy world, but um, but it, it seems to me he had the skull in mind when he was writing Beautiful Blood. I I don't know. The, the skull... T- the skull crossed through that that thinnest of barriers for me, and 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 uh, shouldn't have. I, I felt in in some ways uh, like I was in the middle of a Coen Brothers movie. <laughs> um, that's a, that's and, a very interesting observation. <laughs> and uh, it is it tonally and and in attitude it. It really didn't seem to work, or or to fit with uh, with the other stories. Yeah, I thought he was trying to somehow bridge the Griot stories with life during wartime and that sort of thing. And mm. I'm not sure why, but I got that sense. Yeah, I don't know. Well, what yeah. else is coming up that we know is coming out? That in, in the next year that we should all be excited about. Oh God, I should have my schedule in front of me. Um, well, I, I would say that uh, um, the Ellison book at the end of the year is going to be a definite highlight. Um, it, it, it'll be the you know the first presentation of what is essentially the best of Harlan Ellison. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I loved the essential Ellison very much, but there was all sorts of uh, byways through that book as 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 Harlan intended. Yeah. Um, we'll, we're going to be doing a, you know, a limited of another George Martin book later this year if the artist uh, can finish the last five drawings. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think of what else. Uh, we have another Lawrence Block collection coming mm-hmm. along towards the end of the year. It's, it's kind of funny. We publish science fiction, fantasy, and horror. And Lawrence Block. <laughs> Lawrence Block turns out to be a pal of Peter Straub, and they like each other's work. And Lawrence Block apparently has has read horror fiction for quite a while. I wasn't aware of the latter, but uh, um, I got bit by 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 the Block bug sometime in the mid '90s or a bit earlier, and 
back then I actually had time to read and, and, and read virtually everything I could get my hands on. And um, he has uh, an erotic novel called uh, Ronald Rabbit is a Dirty Old Man that he wrote over the course of three days, and it turned out so well that he decided not to put it out under a pseudonym. And an- another small press, uh, a very good one, ASAP, had done a limited of it that included a, there was a very fragile trade paperback for $50 and then a, a hardcover in a, an acrylic slipcase for 125 and and I approached Larry to see if he'd let me do a $16 trade paperback. And... <laughs> and uh, that's how uh, that's how our relationship began. Yeah. Didn't somebody publish some small press reprint some of Robert Silverberg's erotic novel, erotic paperbacks recently? Uh, actually, we're doing that. Oh, you're doing <laughs> okay. We haven't we ha- we haven't. Uh, uh, it hasn't appeared on the schedule yet. But it's called Omnibus of Lust, <laughs> um, and it'll be out sometime next year. So you're and not then, doing. Uh, Okay, my my immediate question: You're not going to do Harlan's Sex Gang as long as you're into this? That's been redone. Oh, it has been. Yeah. Um, uh, hang on. Let me grab the the book right here. Actually, it it's been done as two um, essentially mass market sized paperbacks that were published as as trade paperbacks by um, Kix Books. One's called Getting in the Wind, and the other's called Pulling a Train. Okay, I missed those entirely. And uh, they contain all of Sex Gang and, and some additional material. Okay. Um, and then, uh, well, you know, the Juvies came out about 10 years ago as Children of the Streets. Yeah. Right, and somebody reprinted Gentleman Junkie and... Uh, that would be Bill. Yeah, that was me. <laughs> You did Gentleman Junkie. Uh, uh, well, I have to say, say in gorgeous, yeah, we did Gentleman Junkie and Deadly Streets. In gorgeous editions, Bill. Gorgeous editions. They're, they're gorgeous, yeah. Those books, those books were fun. Um, and uh, next year, actually, I can probably say this: we're we're going to be doing uh, Bloods Are Over. Okay. Really? Fantastic. Yes. Okay. Piece What's of, that? Piece, piece of Harlan trivia: We're talking about the Deadly Streets. We're talking about. Um, Alfred Hitchcock presents did a half hour or an hour long adaptation of um, Memo from Purgatory, in which the narrator um, was a third version of Harlan Ellison. Do you know, do you yes. know who the actor was who played that role? No. Walter Koenig. I'm sorry, who? Walter Koenig, leader of Star Trek. Oh. <laughs> Well, you know, Harlan has been uh, self-publishing a bunch of his scripts and other things. Uh-huh. He uh, he actually has the ones that, that, that most folks would be interested in are um, Rough Beasts, which is a, a collection of his early uncollected SF, and then uh, the first volume of his uh, his very early crime stories is uh, Honorable, honorable whoredom at a penny a word. <laughs> do you think, Bill, anyone will ever do the collected stories of Harlan? At one point, it seemed to be one of those projects that killed publishers. I, I don't know. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> to be honest, um, I have a really good working relationship with Harlan um, because. 
we, we've we've kind of kind of sorted things out so that he he lets me do the heavy lifting, mm-hmm. and um, he he doesn't have to have to do as much. He of course oversees everything, and and approves it or disapproves. But uh, it 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 seems to be working pretty efficiently. I mean, it took us ten years to do Deathbird stories, yeah. and then we did. Uh, Gentleman Junkie and Deadly Streets in under a year, and it will have taken, I don't know, a year and a quarter to do uh, uh, the top of the volcano. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, I mean, I, I, my wife and I wrote a book on Harlan many years ago, which he, which he didn't like at first, and he seems to be very comfortable with now. Um, one of his best story collections was Love Ain't Nothing But Sex Misspelled. And has that been reprinted at all in the last 20 years? Yeah, um, actually, virtually all of uh, Harlan's stuff was uh, in print via in trade paperback and ebook via e-reads, mm-hmm. and then sold to Open Road. Yeah. In fact, oh, the uh, the the um, POD trade paperbacks were just. Uh, recently uh redesigned into a really nice uniform looking set yeah yes well actually let me ask you one final question then we'll we'll wrap up when will we be able to see the final issue of subterranean probably in the next two weeks uh all of the stories are in uh our production assistant uh gerilyn is proofreading them and adding uh adding various uh, html tags where necessary and then I will a send everything off to uh, to my web guy to post, and b I will um, take all of the web formatting that's been done, uh, undo it, turn everything back into normal paragraphs, <laughs> and uh, send it on to my ebook guy. Yep. And it's going to be a good issue. It's about I think it's about 120,000 words, which would be the are, longest you've ever published, yes. Yeah, oh. I kind of wanted to go out with uh, with everything. <laughs> well, look, I'd like to thank you very much for joining us, Bill. I've enjoyed the conversation a great deal. And, well, thank you. And uh, with a little bit of luck, to, you know, we'll, we'll, this will be out sort, sort of to the public fairly soon. Um, I understand you'll be at World Fantasy, where you may bump into Gary. And all things being equal, maybe we'll cross paths next year sometime. That would be wonderful. Anyway, you guys take care, and thank you very much for having me. Okay. Take care, Bill. Bye. And thanks, Gary. Talk to you next week.